is Dramatic Travels. Yo-ho, my friend, Aaron Schlein here, and you have landed on Dramatic Travels Family. Dramatic Travels Family is here to inspire you to travel the world with your kids and to give you the resources and support to help make your family travel dreams take flight. Speaking of resources and support, please take a moment after the show to check out the Dramatic Travels Family Facebook group. If you want to connect with real people, with real parents who understand the power of travel and are taking action and showing their kids the world, then the Dramatic Travels Family Facebook community is for you. Check us out at DramaticTravels.com slash Facebook. Welcome to episode number 23 of Dramatic Travels Family. You're listening to part one of my chat with this week's guest, Sarah Dugnan from the Anthro Dish podcast. If you're listening to this the day it goes live, July the 23rd, part two is going to be available in the podcast directories bright and early tomorrow morning. But if you just can't wait to dive into part two, just head over to DramaticTravels.com slash 23 and part two is waiting for you right there to enjoy today. All right, my friends, sit back, take a nice deep breath. And enjoy part one of my chat with this week's guest, Sarah Dugnan from the Anthro Dish podcast. Dramatic Travels family, it is my pleasure to introduce you to today's guest, Sarah Dugnan. Sarah, are you ready to share your dramatic travels? Yes, I'm so excited. Thanks for having me on. You bet. Sarah is a mother, a PhD candidate, and the host of the forthcoming podcast, Anthro Dish, a weekly podcast about food, culture, and identity. Sarah lives in Toronto, Canada, and she is currently studying anthropology of health at McMaster University in Hamilton, Ontario, Canada. She also works as a bioarchaeologist in Lewisburg, Nova Scotia, but she has also worked for a number of years in Belize. You can find Sarah and the Anthro Dish podcast at anthrodish.ca. Sarah, that is your official bio. Please fill in some gaps. Tell us about your personal and your business life. Cool. All right. Uh, well, I guess I'll start with business life because that tends to be a little bit easier. Uh, so I am currently doing my PhD. I do it in the anthropology of health. Uh, I'm currently working with Six Nations of the Grand River, which is a First Nations community in Ontario. Uh, and we're working together to look at uh, community health and looking at how we can measure and assess that in more culturally appropriate ways. So that's kind of the big you know, business part of my life right now. Uh, on the personal level, I've got a two-year-old daughter, so I'm really busy with her right now. She's kind of at that terrible twos, but also like energetic twos phase. So yeah, so I spend a lot of time with her in my downtime. Any traveling yet with the two-year-old? Yes, actually lots. Um, yeah, we started traveling with her, my partner and I, when she was about four months old. We took her to Poland. That was her first trip. So started oh off. Yeah. <laughs> you just dove right into the deep end of the pool. Why Poland? Right? Uh, so my partner is actually from Poland uh, and he's got a lot of family that's still there. So we tend to, we try to go every couple of years just to keep in touch with them. But Great. Yeah. So what were some highlights of that trip? I'd love to hear about it. Yeah, so she, I guess the highlights were introducing her to the family because, um, like, I don't speak Polish and they, they speak English pretty well, but not as fluently. So there's kind of, there's not necessarily a lot of opportunities for me to get to know people apart from like facial expressions. So being able to bring my daughter in and just see all these faces light up with all this love and this joy was really special. Like, that was the 
highlight of the trip. So, and so she's two now. Uh, how's her Polish? Um, she doesn't really know any Polish, unfortunately. We're I think we're probably going to put her into like a Polish school when she's a little bit older. Um, but yeah, she's just kind of grasping the English language right now. So yeah, yeah. that's fun. That's a super <laughs> fun age. Yes. And uh, I love, I'd love that at least it's in your, in your thoughts to, to raise her bilingual. Cause it's such a great opportunity that it surprises me how many parents pass up on that opportunity when it presents itself, when you have two languages in a house and for whatever reason they choose not to introduce the child or at least not, you know, consistently to that other language. And, uh, yeah. What do you have any fears about that or any concerns? I, I am a little bit nervous about her missing out on that because um, it's such a big part of part of her family, and I don't want her to be in my position where she can't speak to family members one day. So I really do want to try and get her to be at least like pretty comfortable at one point, so she can have conversations and get to know these people as well. Yeah, that'll be so much fun. Such a such a yeah. wonderful gift uh, that you'll be giving her. Give that gift of being bilingual or possibly trilingual. I know you're in Toronto. It's not a a huge French part of Canada, but what's the French, um, what's the French language like in in Toronto? How prevalent is it? Um, I mean, you don't really hear it too often in Toronto, like just on the streets, but we do have French lessons or like French classes in our curriculum. So you learn it. I think it's changed, but like when I was a kid, we had it up until grade nine, it was mandatory. Um, I don't know if it's still mandatory the entire time, but she will have French throughout education as well so and how's maybe your trilingual oh gosh i can read it uh but i haven't spoken it fluently in a very long time excellent well, we're going to dive more into uh to everything you got going on right now with anthro dish of course with the podcast launch super exciting but i'd like to start at the beginning with you the beginning of your journey tell me about traveling as a kid and can you tell me about that first travel memory and what made it just so memorable Yeah. So, I mean, growing up, I grew up in a small town in Ontario. So pretty, you know, like Northern Ontario, uh, not super remote, but generally pretty remote. Uh, And we traveled a little bit when we were kids, just like going camping and stuff like that. And then when I was about, I think it was in grade seven was our first big trip. And my parents decided to take my brother and I down to Florida. Uh, But we decided to take the, the mom van down to Florida and just do like a straight drive down. So it was about 28 hours in a van with my family. Uh, and you know, the, the actual trip to Florida was great. We got to visit my grandparents down there. Uh, and it was like so new and so foreign to me, but the actual drive down and like passing through all those different States that I had never been to, I had no idea like how, uh, vast America was or like how different States were so totally different from each other. So that was kind of, I mean, I've never forgotten those memories. That's just been like, it was so fun to be able to do that with my family. Was there any particular eye-popping moment that stands out to you? Yeah. So I think the the biggest one that we still laugh about is uh, we had gotten down to Georgia and we were getting pretty, um, I guess, squirrely at that point, like getting very restless, especially being young kids. And there was, uh, I think it was, it was Hardee's. I think that's the restaurant that it was like that burger place. Mm-hmm. Um, and so we had pulled in there, had no idea really what to expect. It was pretty quiet. And we see this uh, police officer with an inmate and they were sharing this meal together. And the inmate was like totally handcuffed, eating a burger with the handcuffs. Uh, and everyone was trying to be like very chill about it, but it was such a bizarre, especially like as a 12 year old kid, it was, uh, it was such a, like, and it was such a, uh, good give and take between the police officer and the inmate. Like they were kind of chatting as if they were friends. So it was kind of funny to see that. That is that is interesting, especially as a twelve year old kid to kind of get your mind spinning about yeah this this 
interesting, weird new place you're in as you're, like you said, traveling down through the individual states and say, oh, this is the way they do things in Georgia. <laughs> yeah, right. There's like that Southern hospitality there. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's that's so cool. And it's, I love that you remember it and that obviously that memory is very, very vivid, had a big, powerful impact on you. I love hearing stories like that because... As parents, and, and I'm sure you know this already, even with just a two-year-old, you know, you don't always, the day-to-day get, can get in your way and you don't, oh, you're not always thinking about the impact that you're having on your kids long-term. And for me, travel is just one of those, those things that had such a huge impact on me. And I don't think necessarily the adults in my life, my grandmother in particular, even knew at the time the impact that she was having on my life and that, you know, 20 years down the road that I would be hosting a podcast where I talk about the importance of travel, but it really all traced back to her and for you tracing back to that road trip and all those individual memories. And then you sharing your story just to inspire other parents to, to, to give those gifts to give that gift to travel to their own kids. So I, I love hearing stories like that. Yeah. So let's talk about the people in your life growing up. Can you talk about some specific people who you would consider inspirations in travel? Yeah. So I have, I mean, I have pretty like the standard answers, I guess, of my parents, obviously taking us down to Florida every year after that. Uh, but one person who has always kind of been an inspiration to me in that sense is, uh, so my mom's sister, my aunt, um, she, uh, has for as long as I've known her been very much, uh, just an avid traveler and very independent in her traveling. And so I remember like, we've always had a very close bond and I remember, I think I was, maybe three or four. And she, um, she was a teacher and decided to go down to Mexico and teach for a couple of years. And this was in the 1990s. So at that point, like email had just kind of started, you know, becoming a little bit more prominent, but we didn't have a lot of communication apart from like maybe the odd expensive phone call or some letters. And so I missed her so much in those two years as a kid. Uh, but whenever I got a letter, I was so excited. And the the act of having that physical letter to me is pretty magical to be able to like get this letter from another country, uh, especially as a young kid. So being able to see her travel that way has always kind of stuck with me because it was very much like on her own terms, kind of shaking up the norm of what you'd expect of a typical teaching career and being able to kind of take it and move wherever you wanted to. You still have those, those postcards and those letters? I don't think so. My mom, <laughs> my mom tends to declutter often. So I'm sure we probably have a couple things lying around, but uh, the memories are there. The letters might not be. <laughs> It's interesting that there's, I know letters and postcards for the most part have, have gone by the wayside as technology is ramped up, but there is a real power in reading either something that was written pen to paper by someone else, or even something that you've written pen to paper, whether it's a journal. And I've said this before, I like to send postcards home to myself when I travel because of, because of that memory trigger that we spoke about. I can read a postcard that I wrote to myself as soon as I opened my mailbox after a trip, I'll remember exactly where I was, what I was doing. And that, that can go on for years. You know, I can five, 10 years down the road, I'll read that. I just, I'll just go back in my mind and just involuntary, you know, brain thing, you know, just, I can't <laughs> explain it. It just, you just yeah. go back to that moment. There's something that just triggers that, that memory. And, uh, and that's so cool. And I'm, I speculate at least that those letters had the impact on you because of just the way that, that it made you feel and kind of got your imagination off and running. Yeah, totally. And again, like that physical, it's like the person took that time to send that. And mm-hmm. so that's, especially in the digital age, much more meaningful to me to like have that, that amount of time dedicated to sharing a message. It's pretty cool. Yeah, it is really cool. When you, when you, when you put it that way, thinking about whatever they happen to be doing at that moment, 
you know, they were focused on you and sending that letter, sharing some piece of information with you as opposed to a mass email list. Yeah, exactly. very, very cool. <laughs> and so folks out there in podcast land, remember that the people in your lives, the special people who you want to inspire and share with and just let them know that you're truly thinking about them. You know, there's these things called postcards that we used to yeah. send. <laughs> Can still find them sometimes. So you can still find them sometimes. <laughs> Tracking down a stamp, I know, can be a, a little more challenging these days. But yeah, it's a real great way to to show people you're thinking of them, and a great way to capture those travel memories. So, Definitely. Sarah, over the course of your life and over the course of your travels, have you come across a, a scary moment or a tense moment that you can share with us? Something that made a lasting impression? Yes, certainly. Um, so I've had a lot of, I mean, I've, I've been to a lot of really interesting places and I've had a lot of moments that have not always been, you know, the most fun and a little bit nerve wracking. But I think the one that stands out was um, when I first started working in Belize. Uh, so I did uh, a field school, like an archaeology field school down there for a number of years. I started as a student and then I worked as a field assistant. Um, after that first year as a student. And the first time I went down, I think I was about 19 or 20. Um, hadn't really, I had traveled a bit, but this was the first time that I had traveled without family members and without, uh, without kind of like that. Yeah. Like without an adult necessarily watching over you. So, um, to kind of give you a little bit of background in the field, we lived in the jungle Monday to Friday. So we didn't have internet, like electricity, anything like that. So that entire Monday to Friday, every week we were just working and digging and it was very exhausting and super fun. Uh, but then on our weekends, we typically had them to ourselves. And so we could arrange to do field trips if we wanted to, or stick around, um, San Ignacio and Belize is kind of where we were based on the weekends. Um, and so my friends and I decided let's take a road trip. Let's rent a car and go to a coastal town called Placencia, which is on a peninsula in Belize, right on the ocean. Um, and we had heard a lot of really good things about it. We were super excited. Uh, and then my professor kind of stopped us on our way out and he was like, just to let you know, there's been a little bit of, um, a little bit more trouble down there than normal. And, and he had been working in Belize for, you know, 30 years. So he knew the ins and outs of the country. So we, you know, kind of, kind of listened to him. But at the same time, you're a 20 year old kid. You're like, ah, like, it'll be fine. I'm going to be fine. It's great. Um, so we got down, we drove down to Placencia, had a really great weekend. Uh, and then on the way back, we were driving just like coming off of the peninsula. Um, I see this lady jut out onto the highway and it's a very quiet highway. Like it's just the two laner. Um, but this lady is just sweating and covered in like blood and crying. And it was just very, it was so visually grabbing I don't know like just very arresting um and so my friend was driving the car and he stopped because he saw this lady and was so like we all were kind of like wow what do we do um so we were you know getting ready to get out and help her uh and then all of a sudden out of the corner of my eye I see this guy coming out on the other side towards our car with a machete so we started to realize like maybe this isn't what it seems. Maybe they're coming after us, especially with like some increased violence in the area. Um, so I like grabbed my buddy and was like, you gotta go, you gotta go. And we drove off in that moment and kind of left them. So there's still like that part of me that feels very guilty about leaving that woman in case she was in trouble. But if it was something else, you know, we never really knew. And that was kind of that first moment, um, where I realized, you know, it sounds kind of silly, but like how precious life is and how quickly things can turn. Um, so that was a really big wake up call to me in my travels to kind of slow down and be a little bit smarter about 
where I go and like what I see and yeah, stuff like that. So talk about that a little bit. What are some, what are some tactics you acquired after that incident that, um, that you employ in your travels today? Um, I think the biggest one for me is just to kind of like read up on the areas that I'm in and just have a less of a laissez-faire attitude. Like I think I used to go into things and just kind of be like, oh, I'm going to be fine. Everything's going to come out all right. And now I kind of go in, like not necessarily expecting bad things to happen, but I know to kind of keep my eyes, especially when I'm traveling with my daughter, to kind of be aware of like the people in any given context, like what they're doing. Um, So there's nothing really specific, but I'm just a little bit more cautious and aware than I used to be. Less, less invincible. Yeah, exactly. Cool. That's, yeah, that's interesting. And I, I can certainly, certainly relate to a story like that, but you know, just taking the lessons that you learned and, and sharing them with, with the listeners here today, that's, that's really important because there's so many fears and there's so many, there's so many reasons not to, to step out the door and go see the world, especially with your kids. So when you share a story like that of overcoming a fear or just a mindset shift of, of seeing mm. something that's potentially as horrific as that. And learning from it and having it, you know, and still being able to get out and do the things you want to do and, and have the adventures that you want to have is, is very, 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 very powerful. You spoke about the guilt because that, that hits, that kind of hits me too a little bit. Is that something you go back in your head to very often? Yeah. I mean, I would say, you know, I don't always go back to it, but every so often, especially like when I was preparing for this, I always kind of, the visual has never left me. And I always wonder like, did she actually need help or was that kind of a setup to, um, you know, for tourists or to like, to hurt a tourist. So there is that guilt about like wondering what happened to her or even like, regardless, like she was still in that very violent situation and not really being able to do anything for her or for people in that situation has kind of always stuck with me. This has a very surreal feel to it. Almost like, you know, as the years go by, you'd begin to wonder, did that really happen? Or was that from a movie? Was that a nightmare? Cause exactly. it's such, such a horrific image you painted when you were telling yeah. that story. Yeah. And especially coming from like Peterborough, Ontario, where there's not really a lot of violence. It's very, it is exactly, it's, it's just very surreal to see something like that. Almost as surreal as seeing a, a prisoner eating a Hardy's hamburger with handcuffs on. You know? <laughs> yeah. Right. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so Cheryl, let's, let's shift the conversation from a low moment to a high moment. Tell me about an inspirational moment from your travels. Cool. Yeah. Uh, okay. So this one, I guess is the context is a little bit weird, but it kind of helps with the story. So, uh, when I was 16, the same aunt that had gone to Mexico and like traveled a lot, uh, her and I went on this crazy, I think it was like a month and a half long trip. So we went to South Korea, Singapore, San Francisco, and Australia. Um, and we had been going with this church group and we weren't particularly religious, but this was like one of those opportunities that you can't really pass up. Um, because it was a really great deal. You're seeing all these countries, you're traveling with a bunch of people, uh, and you were staying in, I mean, we stayed with, I think they called them host families. So you got to stay with like people who actually lived in the cities that you're traveling to. Um, so we get to Australia and I think, yeah, so it was, I think it was world youth day. That was like the main attraction when we went, um, what is world youth day. It's, I don't really know how to describe it because I don't, like I was there, so you think I should, I I should know, but basically it's like this, it's a Catholic gathering of young, young adults um, who are there. Yeah, young Catholics to see the Pope. Yeah, so it was was really cool. Again, like I'm not super religious and my aunt wasn't super religious, so it was like really neat for us, but it didn't have the same meaning, I think, 
that it would for others. But um, you had heard, you have heard of the Pope. He- <laughs> yes, <laughs> definitely. And it was it, honestly, it was really cool to see him speak. Like that was a pretty, pretty neat moment. Um, but we had, so we had been with this church group for so long and we had seen so many different churches in Australia and South Korea and like all these places, which were beautiful. But, you know, you start to see, I think we saw like 60 churches and we're like, okay, like mm-hmm. a pew is a pew. Um, get churched out. Yeah, exactly. So we're in Sydney. We have, um, we're kind of like in this giant field with all these young people. Um, and we had just seen a Pope and we knew that we had, we had to leave Sydney the, the morning uh, following that. So we had a few hours left and we really wanted to see the Sydney Harbor Bridge. Um, and we tried to, we basically like on foot walked from that field, which I can't even remember where it was, but it was about like a two or three hour walk from where we were to the Sydney Harbor bridge. And we were like moving in between all these like thousands of people from all over the world trying to get out at the same time. Um, and we got to the Harbor bridge, like right as the last tour was, uh, about to start. So we get our tickets for the tour. We get into like those crazy jumpsuits that you have to wear to get on the bridge. And we hike up the bridge, get to the top of the Sydney Harbor bridge, just as the sun's setting. So you get to see the sunset over the harbor. You get to see the city of Sydney. Um, and I remember just standing there with my aunt and I was 16 years old. And I was like, this is, this is my life at 16 years old. And like, it's only going to get better from there. So that was kind of that first moment for me where I was like, this is what my life could be. It doesn't have to be like staying in a small town. So yeah. So that was like so magical. Yeah. That's, that, that is really powerful. And especially when you, you relate it back to the context of coming from a small town, you know, you come from small town Canada and then to, to seeing the Pope and seeing the sunset from the Sydney Harbor Bridge all in the same day. Yeah. Yeah. Right. <laughs> that is something yeah. that, that yeah. really is something all at, at 16 years old. That's so, so cool. And I can, uh, you painted a real good picture too. That I was, I was visualizing, I've been to the Sydney Harbor Bridge, so I know what it looks right. like, but I've, I didn't go up it and I definitely didn't see the sunset from it. So I was glad to have an opportunity to at least see it through your eyes. I love that you included San Francisco too in that list of you know these incredible international cities because to me San Francisco is right down the road from here from where I live. True, so yeah. it's so cool that like that's a place people want to go. It's just sort oh, of absolutely. I actually I'm a little bit sad because we had uh, we only had a 20 hour layover in San Francisco and we didn't really get a good like I feel like I didn't get to see the city the way that I wanted to. I only I saw the Sydney Harbor or not the Sydney Harbor Bridge, sorry, the San Francisco, like that red bridge uh, from a bus, the Golden Gate Bridge. So I just saw it from a bus. So I feel like I was kind of, you know, I didn't experience it the way that I wanted to. So I've always really wanted to go back and like fully see San Francisco because it seems like a very cool place to to check out. It is a cool place. And last I checked, the Golden Gate Bridge is still there. Fantastic. So please, (laughs) please come back and uh, look me up when you get down here. I'm just about 80 miles up the road here in Sacramento, California. So Sarah, let's shift to more like the philosophical side of travel and just tell me, why do you think travel is important? And more importantly, actually, why is it important for kids to travel? Uh, That's a really great question. I love all the answers on your show for that one. Um, So I think for me, you know, I'm an anthropologist um, and so uh, it's really shaped my career and that's obviously kind of had an impact on how I, how I think about travel, but just throughout my throughout my dis or throughout my schooling in anthropology and throughout my travels, you really come to see all the different viewpoints and and the different ways of living, and it helps you simultaneously appreciate 
the variety of how people do, you know, even the simplest of tasks. And also it helps you appreciate your roots. And I think sometimes you take for granted, um, you know, what sorts of things you would do at home or as a Canadian or whatever. Um, and it's not until you start getting out there and meeting people from different countries that ask you like, Oh, like, how do you, you know, even I think something as simple as, um, Canadians have bagged milk. So that's something that, you know, we think is really normal. And then you get out there and you travel and people laugh at that and think it's kind of funny. So it's, you take things for granted and then, yeah, you kind of start to appreciate how like even these small things and the bigger, obviously like cultural and religious viewpoints are so, so different. Okay, Sarah, I've been all over the world. I've never seen bagged milk. You're going to have to describe that to me. What kind of bag are we talking about here? (laughs) So it's, um, you know, have you ever seen like a bag of water? Like sometimes in different African countries, it'll be like water Tetra bags that are literally just like plastic sealed square bags. So it's like the Tetra lining that would be in like a a box, but just without the box? Yes. Okay. Then I (laughs) I can't recall, but but since you explained it that way, at least I grasped the concept a little better now. Yeah, like, is it just like so a Ziploc like, bag? Is it a grocery bag? What is it? No, it's so weird. It's just like it's a bag. It's like a sealed bag, and then you cut the corner of it and put it into a pitcher, and that's like how you pour your milk. Which is apparently it's an exclusively Canadian thing, but but it so, yeah. but it it clearly requires a pitcher. You can't yes. just put the bag back in the fridge. I guess you have to twist tie it up. So interesting. So fascinating. Yeah, <laughs> it's kind of like um, well, it's kind of like chopsticks. It's like there's there are other more perhaps more efficient ways to eat, but chopsticks work in the nations that use them. And just the way bagged milk works in, in parts of Canada. (laughs) Yep. (laughs) No, I love that. I love, uh, I love just that idea. I know I'm going a bit on a bit of a tangent here, but I love, you know, because people focus on the historical side of travel and, you know, just the, the cultural, you know, the the real deep meaning, but then there's also those little things that day-to-day life, the people that live today in 2018, as opposed to people that lived, you know, thousands of years ago and how do they, how they live their lives and just casual observing the things that are different. And then of course the things that are similar. And it's, it's really cool just to know that there's all these different ways that people do the everyday, the mundane, but it's it's just so fun to see. I was talking on uh, episode 18 a few weeks ago with Scott Kyes from Scott's Cheap Flights. Oh, yeah. I was talking about the the stairs. You and you guys are still at, at stroller age at two years old. You guys are still pushing strollers around. How they have the the stone or concrete stairs with the, it'll oh, be the yeah. stairs and it'll have a flat ramp on either side of where the adult is walking to push strollers up. And it's just so, so simple, so right? brilliant, but I've never seen it here. Just like I've no, never seen yeah. bagged milk. <laughs> yeah, that's such a that's a really good example. And every time I see that, like I see it a lot in Poland, and it just makes me so happy because it like immediately becomes easier. But right, I know yeah. it's, it's crazy. You don't have to look for so that good. ramp. Don't have to look yeah. for the elevator. Yeah. Oh my goodness. So my but, friends in podcast land, get out there, see what other exciting, <laughs> see what exciting cultural differences you can spot around the world, whether it's in the U.S. and Canada or anywhere around the world. And if you haven't tried bagged milk, go find it. <laughs> So Sarah, let's let's talk podcast. So yeah, for you got sure. the Anthro Dish podcast, which as of this recording, we're talking on June the twenty second is still uh, the launch is still in the future. But tell us about the podcast and when we can tune in. Cool. Yeah. So uh, the podcast is called Anthro Dish. Um, it kind of co- combines my love of anthropology with my love of food, um, and somehow, you know, I'm a biological anthropologist, so I look a lot at health and how health can be measured and perceived in different ways and looking how at how like biology culture 
society, environment, all kind of influence our health. And so I've kind of taken that approach to food. And I really want to, with the podcast, I'm interviewing both professionals in like food studies and also just everyday people who have some sort of passion for food or some interest or relationship. Um, so I kind of want to, especially with the um, more personal stories about food, we kind of start to explore something, you know, a simple gesture or a simple idea about food in that person's life and kind of intertwine it throughout their lives within that podcast episode. So it's been a really cool experience talking to all these people. Um, And, you know, the academic episodes I also love because you get to hear this new research coming out about food that is coming from the mouths of the people that are doing the research um, in a much more informal setting than like an academic paper. Um, But then you also get to hear all these really cool stories about people and the foods that have kind of inspired and shaped their lives as well. On your uh, your website and the description of your podcast, you talk about exploring how food helps to maintain age old traditions. Uh, Talk about that for a minute. It's fascinating to me. Uh, Yeah. So I think you know, when I when I was writing that, I had in mind uh, my partner's Polish history and Polish culture. And I think a lot of times, you know, in, especially in day-to-day life with a toddler, you kind of don't really think about your cultural identity too much. Um, but we always come back, especially around Christmas time with his family. They make pierogies. They make this potato salad that's like very unique and specific to Poland um, and some other dishes that are like exclusively Polish. And so by maintaining those dishes, they, you know, start to have conversations about their culture and their identity and, and the history of that. Um, so food is kind of, in my mind, very intimately tied to maintaining traditions and maintaining conversations about where you come from. That's so cool. And I love, I love that, that you're, you're doing this work because it's fascinating to me. And I'm sure there's a lot of other folks out there in podcast land that will be fascinated, fascinated by this as well, but there's just doesn't seem to be a whole lot of people talking about this subject. And I love that you're, you're just really diving deep and taking not just your formal education as your you know, a PhD candidate, but then really taking it to the world with, with the podcast. That's really exciting. We were talking a little bit in the, in the pre-interview chat about your experience launching the podcast. Can you share a little bit about that with, the, with our listeners today? Yeah. So it's been, I mean, it's been really eye-opening. Um, I, I, you know, I got the idea for it, I think in January and then I didn't start taking it seriously until April. I just like, I had been really stressed out about school and I wanted a fun outlet. Um, so I was like, you know what, I'm just going to jump deep or jump right in, start this podcast. I put out, I think I just had like a Facebook post and I was like, uh, is there anyone in my friend network that wants to talk about their food identity and culture with me? And I had this like crazy response that I didn't expect. Um, so I, you know, started recording episodes. I started like learning more about podcasting, um, with like John Lee Dumas's that free podcast, uh, web series, I guess. So that was pretty amazing. Um, And now we're getting ready for the launch. And I think that's kind of, and we kind of talked about that before, but, um, you know, the episodes are kind of the easy part. You sit down, you talk to these people, it's really fun. But then all the behind the scenes, like learning about how to promote it on social media, um, learning how to construct a website, all those sorts of things, even like the music and the artwork and everything like that has been, it's been so fun because it's so far removed from what I do with my studies. So it's been really cool to have this like totally new world open up. Yeah. My friends out there, if you're a podcast consumer, you've seen there's artwork, there's show notes, there's websites, there's social media promotion, all those things you you see as a consumer, somebody had to create that. And in most cases, when it's a new podcast, like the way Sarah's is, that person is your host in this case, Sarah. 
and it, it's a whole lot of work. And so it, it's, I can, I can relate, I can sympathize with what's going on right now. And it really requires the level of passion that you have to keep this going. Cause once you kind of hit that point where you realize this is really a lot of work, this, if it's not something that you're really passionate about and it's not going to drive you through those tough times to keep the podcast or to get the podcast launched and then to keep it going. So I got a lot of confidence in you because you're, you're clearly passionate. You've got a lot of <laughs> you've got a lot of episodes already recorded and you haven't even launched yet, which is super helpful. So tell me about the launch date. When uh, when can we tune in? Um, so I'm aiming for a July 3rd launch. So I think that's on a Tuesday. Yep. So that's our that's our goal date. But worst case Worst case scenario, I was going to say worst case Ontario because that's like a weird uh, trailer park. <laughs> that sounds like a t-shirt or a bumper sticker. Yeah, <laughs> um, yeah. So worst case scenario is going to be out in like mid July, but aiming for early July. Excellent. And that is the Anthro Dish Podcast. And you can check it out. Check out Sarah and the Anthro Dish Podcast. Learn everything you need to know at anthrodish.ca. Yes, indeed, my friend. Just as Sarah Dugan promised, the Anthro Dish podcast is live in the podcast directories right now. We're going to have that link up in the show notes so you can go check out Anthro Dish. Just head to dramatictravels.com slash 23 for all the notes from this episode. You can also check out part two of my chat with Sarah right there at dramatictravels.com slash 23. We will see you there, my friend. <laughs>